Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello, everybody. I don't know what time you're listening to this at, but at this time it's uh, 12 uh, 10. In uh, Athens, Ohio, I'm Dr. Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I'm joined for our third and probably final segment with Dr. John, quote, Stephen, unquote, Allerding, um, D.O. Uh, you graduated from Kirksville. I graduated from OUCOM. Okay, you mentioned Kirksville. You said that my, fellow my partner ca- was a Kirksville okay, graduate. Okay, I, I thought you said that's what was confusing me because you. I thought you said my f- a fellow yeah. Kirksville grad. Okay, yeah, in nineteen when eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. Nineteen eighty five. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's very. Who awesome. Who's the dean? Uh, Frank Myers. Frank was the dean then. You know, he just yes. passed away. I did. Yeah, you saw that probably. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was my dean too. He, he had a long, long, yeah. long longevity. Nope. Uh, uh, so much respect and good memories of uh, Dean Myers, Daryl Rischel, mm-hmm. uh, Ed Beckett. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was just an incredibly personable group of people in our personnel at that time. You know they're building a new medical school. I do know that. We won't have these wonderful nostalgic halls to walk anymore. It'll be sad. It will be. It'll be a giant glass box. <laughs> and, but but the, 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 the architectural elevations look very pretty. Yes, it will. Where will it stand? Well, do you know where do you know where West Union is? Do you know where the the um, oh, let me put it in perspective where the Human Resources Building? It's a newer brick building. If you go through the little roundabout, like if you're going out to Larry's Larry's Doghouse, I get, I can't say that enough. Larry's Doghouse. They have great weenie Wednesdays and ice cream. Go <laughs> go around the roundabout. You go all, towards the towards the west. As you just go past the roundabout, you'll see the Human Resources Building. Then that next place, there's an old brick building that's been there for years, that lot is where the new medical school will be. In fact, the medical school will occupy part of that human resources building. And then on the other side will be, I think, eventually their plan is to move the engineering school into the big building and it's across the street with the big parking lot. So, yeah. My understanding is we won't have adequate parking, which means I'm going to start riding a motorcycle to school. There you go. That's right. Because they don't care where you park a motorcycle here. Well, that's good then. I know. That's good. And uh, to get completely off track, we're uh, also joined with Dr. Allerding's wife, Peg, who's come down with him for this trip, and Zach Wills, who is in OMS2 and about to take his boards and then go on to his third year of medical school. Yes, I'll be in Sandusky up in the Firelands for third and fourth year. One of the nicer campuses. I work the ER up at the Firelands Hospital. I've heard great things about it, so I'm really excited to go up there. It's a good group. Is it Marianne's, the ice cream store up there? Is it Marianne? No, it's not um, Marianne's. That's in Santa Cruz. What is the? There's a famous think, ice cream dealership up in Santa Cruz. I believe it's Tufts. Tufts. That's Tufts, right. Okay. Tufts. So you got to go to Tufts. It's a great place. They don't sponsor. No one sponsors us for anything. But I'm going to mention all the nice places in Ohio because Ohio is a great state, even though it's humid. Uh, yeah. Okay. So with that, uh, we're going to get on with it. Okay. So tell us. We talked. We talked a lot about a lot of things in these last two segments. The conditions, last thing we talked about was one of your colleagues getting knocked out of his bunk in, in rough seas and suffering a pretty serious head injury as a part of that. Yes. Uh, it was more a pelvis fracture. Pelvis was more serious of the two injuries, yeah. Yeah, and then he gets evacuated. So let's go back down to when you're there. We talked briefly about telemedicine or vaguely alluded to it. What Do you, do you use telemedicine? Um, the telemedicine was available uh, to give us access to any type of uh, – uh, specialist assistance we might need. So um, we had everything possible that if I uh, had a throat that I was concerned uh, about uh, something severe, I could uh, 
put a scope onto the little camera and I could actually show a, an ENT doc what this throat looked like oh, on nice. our telemedicine. Um, like a pharyngoscope? Yeah. Nice. It, it, it was a, a good setup. Um, and uh, fortunately, we, we checked it regularly, but uh, it was one that uh, we didn't have to utilize uh, during either my uh, winter at South Pole or my winter at Palmer Station. We were blessed with a, a pretty healthy and safe season both years. Uh, Teleradiology, you have digital x-ray? We had digital x-ray. We had a, uh, um, a portable uh, x-ray machine. Uh, we shot the cassettes and then uh, could download the cassettes uh, through the scanner. And those films were then sent to Denver and then on to UTMB radiologists for reading. Interesting. That's pretty cool. It was so, very cool. So now here's the, here's the next question, right? So, the, and this is nug work for people listening, but for those of you who like this stuff, you'll you'll appreciate this. What was your training in radiology? Because, you know, I mean, we sent people to school for this for a couple of years, radiation technologists, to learn how to position things properly and get the proper views. How does that work for you when you're showing up and shooting a picture of someone's, I don't know, shoulder? Uh, we had an hour of orientation uh, at my orientation, and that was the full extent of my x-ray training. Nice. So have you had occasion where someone said, that's the wrong view? I've had feedback that it was a less than adequate view, <laughs> not that it was the wrong view. That's actually the way the radiologists yeah. insult us, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, They're very polite, Gentile people, gent <laughs> genteel people. So they say suboptimal study. That really means you're a complete screwball. The, yeah. folks at, the folks at the University <laughs> of Texas Medical Branch in uh, Galveston uh, are accustomed to working with the polar docs. I think they have a lot of respect for what we're trying to do down there. And uh, I, I never felt like I was being degraded or uh, insulted. I, I got nothing but cooperation from the folks that I worked with. So it was a great experience. I, I think that's awesome. And ultrasound, you can, of course, snap a picture, send it digitally. We could send that digitally as well, yeah. And I'm just thinking about what life was like 50 years ago. I mean, before that, because well, I I've used it too, and I I mean I was the largest user of derm tele, tele telemedicine in Iraq in 2004 because everything you did everything had a rash, but it was so awesome because you could take a digital picture, shoot it across the internet. Some radiologist who's awake would look at it and go, "Yeah, I think it's this." Yeah, it was so cool. It's a tremendous thing to have available. Um, keeping in mind that. It wasn't always available at South Pole, depending on whether the satellites were above the horizon. Which was for how long a day? Eight hours a day. Eight hours a day is it? Eight hours a day. So if Peg wants a desperate answer to a desperate question, she better get in the eight-hour window. Yeah. Otherwise, and that's not a guaranteed window either. There are three, three different satellites that make that eight hours possible, and only one of those satellites is a NASA-related, current, updated, fairly dependable satellite. The other ones are old, outgraded, weather satellites and stuff uh, British and <laughs> yeah just, but, but the combination of the three <laughs> gave us as good a communications as I needed there's some vacuum tubes involved yeah. and there's some some loose wiring have you ever seen yourself on Google Earth down there have you mm, gone out and waved just to have not. see if the Google people have taken a picture of you I have not we did turn the camera <laughs> we did a mother's day greeting and turn the uh, station camera on the group holding up a happy mother's day uh, group of signs uh, down at Palmer Station. That's nice. I like that. <laughs> so, so we, tell us about what what determines an evacuation. You know, who 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 launches authority? How is that process? You got something as a doc. Who's the launch authority? 
we talked a little about the Twin Otters coming down. By the way, it's still the New York National Guard that flies that polar mission. Their C-130s, yeah. is that right? 109th Fixed Air Wing, I think, New York. They're like experts. They've been doing this for decades, yeah. right? If C-130s on skis. Yep. Amazing. LC-130. Um, evacuations are determined by the medical director at UTMB Health, uh, Jim, oh. Dr. Jim McKeith. You tell him you have a person that you feel needs to come off the ice, and he takes it from there. Uh, he'll constantly ask you for reassessment and input, but he takes care of all the work of getting that person off the ice and then gives you guidance as to when and how that's going to, to happen. So uh, it, it, Jim is a, a great medical director. Um, uh, I know that uh, I was in good hands with him at the helm back at Texas, and uh, he takes it up with the... Uh, uh, U.S. Antarctic Program and the National Sound Science Foundation. They all have their medical directors, and uh, those are the folks that make it all happen. Man. All it, you do is package a patient and get everything ready at your end. So we, Peg mentioned that there's so many things to talk about about this, and every time you give me an answer, I think of something else. So you just mentioned packaging. I mean, I assume that there's an evacuation team that comes down an en route care team, a flight nurse, a flight doc, flight flight medics, somebody that's showing up that has experience managing people. But if they get evacuated, what's the flight time to Chile? What's the flight time? I mean, what, what's the closest place with a hospital to where you're at? The closest place to hospital at Palmer Station would be either Ushuaia, Argentina, which is the southernmost mm -hmm. city in the United States, or uh, Punta Arenas, Chile. And the flight time, if you could fly, uh, you can't really land a plane at Palmer Station mm -hmm. unless you try and do it on a glacier, mm -hmm. um, would probably be maybe 90 minutes. Oh, it's not that far. It's not that it's far. That if, it's, if you could fly somebody. If you could fly. Yeah, if you can fly. But by ship, a But day. by ship, you're looking at four days. Four days. Yeah. So when that evacuation, do they ever send a surgical team down to do surgery en route? They have not, to my knowledge. Um, if surgery needed to be accomplished, uh, they're assuming that you would start it under telemedicine guidance if the patient was unstable. And if the patient was stable, uh, you suspected appendix, but they weren't septic, you weren't overly concerned, get them started on antibiotics and uh, get the ship down there to get them where it can be taken care of. If, if at all. And have your Ukrainian anesthesia colleague get on a snowmobile and drive 40 miles over to you so you can help you out. Yeah, they weren't able to do that. There's a lot of water between us and them. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they were on a different island. Um, but we at least had the ship coming down on a regular basis. Their ship drops them off and doesn't come back until it brings their reliefs down a year later. That's like Shackleford. Yeah. Oh my God! Uh, bye bye. That, yeah. Have a nice life. That's that's spooky stuff. And that's it's, why Doctor Danilenko earned my utmost respect. <laughs> so, hey, so this is a, a this is kind of a tongue in cheek question, but it, 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 there's probably a serious answer to it. Have you formed the Antarctic Medical Society yet? Where you guys have meetings? Um, I haven't formed an Antarctic Medical Society, but I did create the first Corvette Club in Antarctica, Antarctica the, the Last Continent Corvette Club. Did you really? I've got eight charter members, and yeah. <laughs> do they all own Corvettes? They don't all own Corvettes, but uh, it was open to anyone with an interest in uh, classic cars. Nice. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great segue, actually. What is a typical day like in Antarctica, other than forming Corvette clubs? 
Um, a day in Antarctica is uh, you're up early like everyone else because everyone has a sleep disorder, sleep disruption. It's the most common medical complaint uh, that I saw, I think, uh, my time in Antarctica. Um, so everyone has disruptive sleep patterns. Most people are up early or uh, they're sleeping through because they're up most of the night, not able to go to sleep. Uh, you start off usually with a good breakfast at the South Pole. Uh, Palmer Station uh, they didn't serve breakfast during the winter. You fended for yourself, but there were always plenty of options available. Uh, chefs went out of their way to make sure that there was things that you could prepare for breakfast yourself. Um, and you were on your workstation uh, at 7.30. Uh, you had a stretching period for uh, the workers to, uh, to do stretching and kind of pre-work routine. And everybody was pretty much on their job by about 7.45 or 8 o'clock. And uh, your work day was uh, until uh, 5.30 or so. Um, I spent most of my day in the clinic. Uh, there was always uh, equipment to take care of, preventative maintenance, uh, controls to run, inventory to do, ordering to maintain, cleaning, uh, as well as seeing the patients. Um, I had an OMT table, so I've, I've done almost 200 manipulations uh, on Antarctica. That may be a, a record. I don't know. Maybe I'll see if the Guinness people have anyone else that's <laughs> done that many uh, uh, adjustments on ice. But uh, uh, you take care of patients. You find ways to volunteer and do other things. You have other responsibilities within the station. You take care of your own station, so you have house mouse on a weekly basis. Um, at South Pole, uh, all those jobs were assigned. You had a team of house mouse people you worked with. At Palmer Station, we just do jobs out of the hat every Saturday, and you and a group of other people would do everything that was necessary to keep the station clean and maintained. Um, you had your galley uh, assistants, uh, your gash uh, on a nightly basis, so uh, everybody signed up and did that voluntarily. So whatever night you wanted to take care of all the dishes and cleaning up the galley and everything after the uh, evening meal, um, that was your groups uh, uh, that took care of all that. Um, There's never any problem filling those slots. Everybody was very enthusiastic about uh, being a part of what it took to keep the station maintained. Uh, I went up to the on the glacier on a regular basis about every week and uh, d helped dig out the uh, radio satellite receiver, which would get buried by snow over the course of a week because uh, the winds at Palmer Station can be anywhere from uh, 12 knots to 125 knots. Uh, can be pretty, pretty intense. Um, Found ways to, to help other guys that needed help. If there was a building project going on, a cleaning project going on, you just said, hey, I've got time. You need help. And uh, an extra pair of hands was always appreciated. And the South Pole. I worked the in the ice tunnel. tunnels a lot at the South Pole. Uh, we uh, built a new warm-up station down there at a midpoint that if the ice tunnel would collapse, there was a, uh, a position down there that had a heater, uh, a trauma set, uh, mostly with... Uh, uh, bandages and uh, hemorrhage control type mm -hmm. supplies, uh, heavy sleeping bags, blankets, and someone could actually survive that 20 feet under the ice for an extended period of time uh, if they needed to uh, until they could be dug out um, because many of the uh, escape hatches uh, had been collapsed or filled in with snow over really? the years. So uh, the, the hut that was there was being collapsed by the ice because I didn't mention, but the South Pole Station sits on a moving glacier of ice, uh, two miles thick, 
that is moving at a rate of about 33 feet a year towards the Weddell Sea. So every January 1st, they use a GPS to reseat the South Pole marker at exactly 90 degrees, zero minutes south. Because it's moved 33 because feet. Because it's moved 33 feet since the last January 1st. And that pole marker is actually uh, designed and fabricated by the winter over crew from the previous winter. Oh, they replace it? They replace it every January 1st with a new pole marker. Where's the old one go? They are in a display case uh, in the station. Really? These are works of art. I was going to say, so that so that doesn't leave. It's just part of the whole it's process. Part of the process. So let me ask this question since you brought that up, and, and I don't want to interrupt you in, as far as this, but there's this, I've seen it maybe as a National Geographic or somewhere else, this giant, like, station on stilts that apparently can be raised over time. Where is that at? That's Amundsen South Pole. That's at the South That's Pole. That's the Amundsen so that, South, so South it's, Pole station. The, the dome is gone. Now we have this thing on stilts. Yes, it can be jacked up, uh, I think, a total of two stories if it becomes necessary because of drifting snow. Interesting. Hydraulics. Yeah. Well, yeah, because everything gets buried down there, doesn't it? Yeah, over time. Over time. Yeah. It only snows three to eight inches a year at but the South Pole. But it's a hard snow. <laughs> well, you've got a constant wind, uh, a catabatic wind that is bringing snow from the higher elevations across a, a, an undisturbed polar plateau with nothing to stop it until it hits your station. So you have big drifts. You have 20 and 30 foot drifts every year to clear out uh, come the beginning of uh, the summer season and you start clearing snow as soon as it's safe to get out and do so. So let me ask this question then. Again, I'm thinking from a perspective as an engineer. What? How long do you live if the generators go out? Like, I mean... Things start freezing and, and oil starts congealing and things... Very, very quickly. Uh, there is a, uh, a portion of the station that is called the lifeboat, and it has an emergency power plant that should the main generators fail or an explosion keep you from maintaining power with your power plant, mm -hmm. everyone would evacuate to that lifeboat. No other part of the station would be heated. You would use your emergency power generator to maintain heat, uh, and everyone would live in that boat until they could evacuate you. Yeah. How long that would be is is anybody's guess. Yeah. We also keep an extra set of extra extreme cold weather gear at a site remote from the station. So should anything happen within the station that you get isolated from your extreme cold weather gear. We have a second set of that uh, at a position uh, remote from the station that you would get access to and uh, help keep you from freezing. Well, you got to think about fires and everything else. Oh, fires the, are the biggest concern down there. I'm sure. Well, yeah, I'm sure. Fires and explosions. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the talk about the various challenges of, of long-duration anything. You know, going to Mars is radiation. How do you shield astronauts for basically a year from all the radiation? You know, you can do it with water. It's a lot of weight. There's, there's a lot of challenges that with here, I mean, it's the same thing. You, you don't get home for a couple of weeks, right? I mean, so, I mean, if the place burns down, you don't live in 102 mile per hour winds and minus 100 for two weeks without significant logistical support. No, that's exactly right. Man. And that, and that support has been pre-planned for the most part and is already there if it's needed and, and maintained for emergencies. Do the NASA guys come down there and want, look at the challenges of long-duration austere living? Do they study you guys at I, all? I imagine there are studies going on. I'm not 
uh, familiar with any of them in particular, but I do know that they're doing a number of studies on uh, people who are in isolated conditions. Uh, in particular, they're looking at uh, what they call the T3 syndrome, where uh, under uh, extreme isolation and severe conditions, uh, people uh, start becoming uh, almost uh, clinically sub-hypothyroid and uh, we'll have cognition problems and mood disturbances and all different kinds of concerns. And it's uh, treated just like any other hypothyroidism is. You, you put them on Synthroid. Here's you know? Synthroid. You can't do levels about it, but you kind of start low and, and go as you need to. Read the instruction manual before you start fixing the generator again. That, that's true with a lot down there. You, 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 you don't know what you're doing until you start doing it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, so what's your favorite part about being down there? Um, I suppose my favorite part about being down there is just the sheer austerity of it and the fact that so few people have ever had the opportunity to do something like that. Um, I always felt a special type of, um, significance being part of the military for my 35 years. Uh, being part of the U.S. Antarctic Program and the National Science Foundation and the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston and their polar program gives me that same sense of significance. Not just success, which anybody can find, but significance, which will escape most people throughout their lives. Yeah, I, I, can, I can relate to that. That's sort of, not because I've been in Antarctica, but I understand exactly where you're coming from that. You want to feel like you, you're doing something of meaning. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah. Do you fish? I don't, but I did fish at the South Pole. Our scientists... I mean, you fished oh, at the South... Not, not the, the South, South Pole. pole. <laughs> they, they have a taken deep people, hole. They have taken <laughs> pictures of people ice fishing at the South Pole. But I fished at Palmer Station. They had a fishing derby because the scientists needed some uh, fish to uh, add to their study. And uh, so we uh, fished off the piers, and I got a, an award for catching the smallest fish of the day. Really? What would you catch? Uh, it was a type of a bullhead cod. They have a, a very interesting fish down there called an ice fish. Yeah, I've seen pictures. I was going yeah. to get to that. It has uh, no hemoglobin or less than 1% hemoglobin. Cool. And yet it has full oxygen transport to all its extremities and organs and everything. How's it doing that? It's doing it for a number of reasons, I believe. Uh, one is it has evolved a huge set of gills and a very robust uh, surface vascular system so that, and, and polar water is extremely oxygen rich. So most of the oxygen reaches that fish by diffusion from the water through the gills and the skin vascular system. Wow. Rather than being carried by the blood. Um, it's a very frail fish. It's translucent, very weak bones. Um, would probably not have survived if not for the fact that the polar seas actually dropped temperature eons ago, and fish that couldn't tolerate the colder temperatures moved out of the area, and most of those fish were the ice fish predators. The ice fish has a uh, glycoprotein in its blood that acts as an antifreeze, so it actually tolerates colder temperatures than just about any other creature on Earth. And so it is in this incredibly oxygen, uh, nutrient-rich algae, algae and uh, uh, krill. Uh, 
in this incredibly nutrient-rich environment without any type of predators, except our scientists. <laughs> well, yeah, so that, that's the pragmatic question. When, if the station burns down, can you eat them? Yes. Okay, so that you can actually eat the ice yeah. fish. Don't taste like chicken. Tastes like fish. <laughs> it tastes like fish. <laughs> but you're seeing through your dinner. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's not a whole lot of filet to a filet. It would take a pretty good uh, slew of them to make a decent meal, but uh, they're, they're completely edible. Better than fried guana. I've never had fried guana. I, I don't know. All I know is Crocodile Dundee said it didn't taste, taste very good. Okay. Yeah, but ice fish probably tastes better. Do you ever see whales? Uh, there are an abundance of whales down there during the summer months. Uh, when we got down there in the winter, they were mostly migrated out of the area. We did see some uh, humpback and uh, minksky whales uh, en route and during our early time down there. Uh, but during summer season, they see uh, tons of uh, humpbacks and minksky whales, a uh, few sperm whales, uh, occasional blue whale, and some orcas. Have you seen penguins? Tons of penguins, again, during the summer. Uh, most of them have migrated out of the area. By the time we get there for the winter crew at the end of March, uh, there are a few stragglers around and then always a few early returners uh, as we're getting ready to leave again. But uh, there's an abundance of wildlife down there for the folks that spend their summer season on the ice. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 again, now, are your pictures posted publicly? Um, I... Publicly on Facebook, I believe, but... Uh, yeah, where would people go to look at your pictures? Um, if they're not Facebook friends... Uh, they can't I, get to them. I, I don't know if they can get to them. You have to be a special <laughs> special I've, club. I've never really posted any of them uh, on any other forum, really. Well, maybe if they, they're properly vetted, you give masses. Because, I mean, they're just, they're just beautiful things. I mean, it, you just look at those photographs, and it's just like, wow, it's unbelievable. Really yeah, awesome. I enjoy taking them, and uh, um, my favorite times in Antarctica, on Antarctica, was being out and about taking the same photos over and over and over again because your scene don't change much, but it looks different every time you take a picture of it. It's and looking comparisons. Yeah. Oh, the light. light is incredible. And we um, sunrises and sunsets. At the South Pole, you have one sunrise and sunset for the whole year. At Palmer Station... Uh, you have winter sunrises and sunsets for the entire winter. And, of course, anybody who's from Ohio knows that the most beautiful sunrises and sunsets are during the winter months. So you have uh, a morning of sunrise, uh, a couple hours of daylight, and then an evening of sunset. <laughs> how long are you going to go down there? How, for, how, much longer, how, how, much, how many more times are you going to go down there? Well, I don't look beyond each time because every time I go, it's my last time. Um, I didn't predict seeing doing another tour after South Pole, but it didn't take long before it got to me. And it took even less time to get to me after this trip to Palmer. Um, the six months works out best for Peg and I. Uh, the winter, I'm not going for the Ohio winter, which is the time that she likes me to be home the most. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a winter person. She is not. So. Well, yeah, your whole life is winter when you yeah. do this, right? I mean, <laughs> you don't ever see summer. I make winter tolerable for and uh, during the, the late spring and summer and early fall, she's perfectly comfortable being on her own. Um, but uh, that winter's hard for her, so I don't do any more times that take me away for the winter, which makes the, the winters at Palmer perfect because that's over our summer. Yeah, yeah it, it just struck, struck me. If you're in Ohio for winter and you're in Antarctica for winter, 
Your life is winter. Pretty much so. Yeah. So I do have one question that, that came in that as we get closer to the end of this, is you have, a, you have an Antarctic Service Medal. Yes. How did you get that? Were you, did you go down there as a soldier? No. Um, the National Science Foundation, the U.S. Antarctic Program, uh, the National Science Foundation is the federal yeah. uh, uh, funding uh, for the U.S. Antarctic Program, yeah. which is also a government program. Um, but it was determined that anybody who wintered over, uh, spent a winter at the South Pole, would qualify for the Antarctic Service Ribbon. So, nice. uh, at the time I got mine, I was the 1,419th person to ever winter over at the South Pole. So, so this is why, the reason why I asked that question is because Zach here is a lieutenant in the Air Force. And when I got in the Army as a second lieutenant, I saw that. I saw the Antarctic Service Medal. I thought, for some reason, I was always fascinated by qualifications that are rare, right? So you'd look at, like, astronaut, Army astronaut wings. By the way, there's an Army astronaut in the ISS right now. She's, yes. she's up there, right? So see, we have an Army astronaut in space right there's now. There's also a former uh, Antarctic uh, program astronaut up there, Christine something. I can't draw on a blank really? on her last name. Yeah. That's pretty she awesome. She just went up with the women's, the, the group of women that went up. Yeah. So you look at that and you say, I want that one. I, you know, these other people, they got silver stars. That's a pretty significant heroic thing, but I'm never going to be that heroic. So I want this weird badge that has like Antarctica on it, right? So, so how does Zach, what, what does Zach do to get his Antarctic Service Medal? Uh, being a part of the Air Force, uh, he would at least have the best opportunity. That medal's been around for a while. Uh, at one time, most of the mission on Antarctica was uh, military, uh, starting with the Navy. Um, the first winter over group was half Navy, half civilian. Uh, since that time, the only military presence on the ice is the uh, 109th Fixed Air Wing out of New York that flies uh, us to and from Antarctica from uh, Christchurch, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So they don't spend a winter on the ice. The only way he would be able to spend his winter on the ice as an Air Force person would be working in a civilian position that was fitting for his profession. He could be the winner over Doc so, at the South Pole. So who does he contact? Other than just putting together his LinkedIn page and hoping someone finds him. <laughs> uh, the University of Texas Medical Branch Health at Galveston, UTMB Health Galveston. UTMB, uh, UTMB Health Galveston uh, is the contractor that provides all the medical personnel for the National Science Foundation and the U.S. Antarctic Program. USAP.gov has links to all the contractors that are involved with the Antarctic Program. So if you're an engineer, you're a mechanic or whatever, go to USAP.gov. They have an employment page there you can click on, and that will put you in the link with the person uh, or the people that are the contractors for that particular job. Um, Lockheed Martin, uh, now Lidos, uh, is the main contractor, and then they subcontract UTMB Health, uh, PAE for a lot of the engineering folks, uh, GCS or GSC for our galley people and chefs. There are different subcontractors that uh, the USAP uses, and, and there are links to that on USAP.gov. Hmm. And so if you're advising Zach about how he should prepare as a, as a general medicine person to go there, what, what, does his, what, does his, what does the ideal training pipeline look like for a young medical student that would like to serve in Antarctica? Uh, an emergency medicine residency. You think so? Yeah. Uh, 
you learn everything in emergency medicine. All the skills that you need, uh, with the exception of manipulation, uh, are taught in an uh, uh, emergency residency program. Uh, probably more so than surgical or anything else. You get The surgical skills are great to have, but they're going to be the exception, not the rule. Uh, primary care and emergency medicine are the skills that you'll use every day down there. You also need to be extremely independent. Uh, you need to have the utmost confidence in your abilities to do the impossible, or at least attempt. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you need to have a personality that uh, exceeds your uh, medical skills because so much of what you're looked to down there is to be not only a professional leader, but also an emotional leader. Um, hmm. You provide a lot of support to people for a lot of different reasons. They're away from home. They're away from family. It's just like when we were in Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever. Sure. You're kind of like the chaplain light in some ways. Everything. Mm -hmm. Dentist, yeah. doctor, chaplain. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Uh, the reason why I asked about that specifically is because we're going to interview next week uh, the guy, the fellow who um, directs the uh, UC Pre-Hospital Fellowship. And so I've been telling the I have the same conversation. My only concern with ER residents is the burnout at eight, at 13 or 14 years. What do you do then? And so anybody that comes in, a lot of people want to do ER medicine. I say, do another fellowship in something. Do it in critical care. Do it in something so that when you burn out in 15 years, you've got a training to fall back on to do something different. Likewise, the people who want to be FPs, I say, maybe you should think about a pre-hospital fellowship because if you want to do some work in ERs and stuff, that's probably going to set you up with a resume to let you into some of these lower and mid-volume ERs. But I found I enjoyed ER medicine and urgent care much more than I ever enjoyed being a family practice doc, I'm afraid. I like that too for a, for a period, but then as you get older, I felt like, you know, I miss the, I miss the connection with people. I don't like the, the – I grew up out west, so if I say cattle medicine or shoot, cattle shoot medicine where people are just coming through, you know, it's a descriptive thing for people who've grown up in that environment. I just started missing that I didn't know who these people were, and I like that about being an FP. I like getting to know that Mary works downtown and, you know, at the gas station. I see her when I get my gas, and this is her family, and, you know, it just it, – I, I, maybe, it, maybe it's nostalgia, but as I got older, I wanted – a more intimate relationship with people. There is that trade-off, and it you does know? have to do with getting older because I did find that I enjoyed my uh, family practice uh, renewal, uh, working a couple summers in Maine yeah. uh, at a primary care clinic. I did enjoy the the day-to-day -day contact, the, the seeing the patients back and, and getting to know them. Well, you know, John, do you find some of that? Maybe that's a, maybe part of the root of what your draw is to Antarctica, that you're working with a community of people that's not very big and get to know them all pretty well. I think that's very much it. You uh, think? It, and it's also the uh, determined length of it. I know oh, that no, it will end. no matter how good or how bad it is, it's going to end. <laughs> it's gonna Family end. practice, day in, day out, uh, <laughs> just, just it never ended. I delivered you, and I'm delivering your children's it children. Never, it never That's ended. That's right. <laughs> well, so, okay, so. But I love the training and the preparation that I got uh, as, uh, as a family practice doc for doing these outside-of-the-box type adventures. Oh, yeah. Um, Zach, any thoughts about this? I mean, I'm good with questions. I think we covered them all. Mm -hmm. You keep looking, but I want you. You 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 hike the Pacific Crest Trail. You have some idea of what it's like to go into extreme places. We're going to talk about that in a different interview. But do you have any perspective from your end? I guess one thing that I kept on thinking about, uh, kept on, like, what was the preparation like when, for when you did go outside? Like, how long did it take you to get ready to go outside? 
Like how many clothes? How much clothes did you? He was put wearing on? his Grinch boxer shorts. <laughs> he didn't have any clothes on, other than his boxer to, shorts. To do the South Pole 300, it took you about an hour because you had to spend about 40 minutes in the sauna at 200 <laughs> degrees to warm your core up, and then the walk around the South Pole was about 12 to 15 minutes uh, out at minus 100 plus degrees. Um, and then back into the sauna if you needed it. I didn't even go back into the sauna. I've been colder at other times in my life. But you learn how to dress depending on what the temperature and what the wind chill is. And you can be overdressed for a portion of your trip and work up a huge sweat uh, that will cause you to chill then on the way back. So you, you learn to layer, you learn to drop layers when you need to. Um, and uh, you try never to be caught by surprise due to anything in the environment. You need to anticipate and uh, prepare for everything uh, in order to avoid anything. Mm-hmm. Did you run around South Pole in flip-flops, or what did you run around in? No, but we did have a patient uh, friend of mine that uh, had a flip-flop blowout on the beer can steps going from the sauna back up to his room, and he uh, had to navigate the last few steps of a minus 60-degree steel staircase on his bare feet. How'd that work out? Uh, It didn't work out well, but uh, (laughs) he recovered with uh, no uh, uh, problems. (laughs) He didn't make the mistake again, and everyone learned from his experience. Well, what have we missed? Peg, do you have some notes, or have we missed anything? I mean, obviously, there's decades of of information here, but just for the sake of this, what have we missed that we should have talked about? She wanted me to mention I got home in time for my grandson's first birthday, Bodie's first birthday. He turned uh, one on October 25th. I got home October 13th, I believe it was, or 19th. Yeah, October's a was. month in our family. Lots of birthdays. <laughs> Lots of birthdays. John, any, any thoughts that you have that we missed, that things you, that you think people should know? Um, I, I'm sure that a lot of people question, you know, what's going on in Antarctica that is worth my tax dollars paying for. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, there is just so much research going on down there. And, and the fact that that is still the one place in the entire world that is dedicated to, to peace and cooperation and scientific development among nations, it's probably the most uh, equalizing presence of any group of people anywhere in the world. And uh, ozone research, uh, oceanic, uh, biological, uh, all the research that's going on there, I think will have tremendous impact and significance as we progress on with the threat of climatic changes and what we're learning down there, I think, will prove to be beneficial to people everywhere, um, not just in polar environments. One of the structures I saw along along with that was, uh, I think it's a large neutrino detector array that they were able to actually gather data and then look at gravitational theory or gravitational yes. wave theory, string I, theory. Uh, the Ice Cube Neutrino Lab, I thought, yeah. was the most fascinating research down there. Yeah. And uh, at the time... Uh, they had actually isolated what they felt were gravitational waves from the original uh, expansion theory of the universe, uh, the uh, the Big Bang theory, mm-hmm. that they were able to track these gravitational waves back to being the results of the initial Big Bang that created our galaxy, universe, and everything. Yeah. But the French... Uh, 
Hubble telescope, I believe it was, felt that these gravitational waves were more consistent with dust storms or a dust footprint in the cosmic picture and did not thereby feel that they were part of gravitational waves. But now the research is also moving back in the direction that there are gravitational waves that have been isolated. The, space co uh, the South Pole Telescope was one of the telescopes that helped formulate the photograph of the black hole that was recently yeah. broadcast over everything. Yeah. So the South Pole Telescope was involved in that. That was one of the 15 telescopes around the world that worked to create that possible picture. Um, they're constantly studying cosmic microwave background. They're constantly looking for signs of what happened in our universe to create it and uh, an attempt to prove the, the theory of expansion. Yeah, the, I mean, it's high-level physics stuff oh, going it, on down there. Oh, it is there. crazy high-level. I, I wish I had a better understanding of it. So I, I have this movie poster because I'm a movie guy, right? So I have Interstellar when um, the physicist Kip Thorne helped them develop an image of what a black hole would look like with gravitational lensing in the event horizon. And what's fascinating is, is that his, his predictions or what the physicists thought when they got those pictures of the black hole, they were like, this is exactly what we thought it would look like. And it was really pretty interesting wow. to listen to that discussion about how the theoretical physicists had come up with these images in their mind about what they should see. And then when these images started coming out, that this is predictably what they were seeing, or at least something that looked very similar. So... It's amazing. I, I know there's a lot of high-level physics going on down there. It, it's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, our uh, astronomist, uh, Robert Schwartz, is spending, I believe, his 15th winter at the South Pole. So uh, he's literally been on the ice for about 10 months of every year for the last 15 years. He's uh, more dedicated than you are. I was going to say, he, he deserves citizenship. He should be Antarctica's first citizen. Has he told the Argentinians yet? I don't think so. Yeah. They, they, might, they might dispute that. They might Ro dispute Robert that. is German. Well, yeah, but maybe he could adopt it. He's, he's, he's a naturalized ah, Antarctican. Foster. I think he'd have a more legitimate claim. You think so? Yeah. Uh, do we catch everything? Uh, I believe so. You think so? Peg, do you have any thoughts? Well, I mean, what, I guess we could close maybe by you saying what it's like to be without your husband for all this time. Do you ever get worried? He's down there. Peaceful. You can, <laughs> you can only he can only bother you for eight hours a day. It, I think it makes both of us stronger. You do? Why? Yes, I think it did the same in the military, and uh, yeah, I, in a weird kind of way, it opens our world to a different type of intimacy. Yeah. 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 I'm proud of him. I am too. <laughs> no, I am. I mean, as a DO, as someone who's served his country in uniform, but then is willing to to separate himself for that sort of higher purpose and significance of going out and doing bold things in a place that, frankly, could be pretty frightening for a physician. I mean, if you're all by yourself and you're responsible for these people, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of a willingness to step out boldly. That, that says a lot about your character, John. That's why I've always respected you, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very, very long time. And I think you're a model for, you know, we hand out all these awards, but honestly, we should be handing you an award. 
and I, and I know you're not, you're not that type of person. I'm suggesting it. I'm saying that someone ought to recognize you for your willingness to get on a boat and go down to this hostile place where you're more vulnerable and exposed than astronauts who have their spaceship blow up um, and just do things for the greater good of science and for the folks that you work with. I think that's a wonderful thing. If no one's ever praised you for that, I'm going to because it's real, and I get it. I do understand some of that just from a technical standpoint of the challenges and what that means as a physician to go into that world. Well, it's kind of like I, I tell people when they say thank you for your military service, uh, I, I tell them it was a privilege, you know, it, and it was. Uh, this is just another privilege. Sure. It really is. And uh, I, I appreciate your, your very, very kind comments. Um, one of the adages is that uh, you go to Antarctica the first time for the experience. Uh, you go back the second time for the money. Uh, and the third time you go back is because you don't fit in anywhere else. <laughs> I, I do not subscribe to uh, either number two or number three, uh, but number one, definitely, you, you go for the experience because there's no other experience like it. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing to end on, and I'm glad that they have you, and I'm glad you're going to go again, and I'm glad, I'll be glad to know that you're back safely, and I hope you'll keep sending those pictures and, and your, your status postings, because they really motivate me. When I'm sitting there at the, in a day and uh, seeing patients or with a challenging clinical problem here in little old Athens, Ohio, and I get a, a posting of what is going on in the bottom of the world, it, 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 just, it just brightens my day. It's a cool thing. I'm glad you enjoy them. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to do that. And thank you guys for listening to Rotations. And of course, you know, you can always uh, spread this out on um, oh, iTunes podcast, right? You can tell people about it. Uh, you can also go to mediamedicine.com and there will be links there. And if you have any comments, uh, please send them uh, to us um, and we'll tell you how to do that in the disclaimer. So thank you for joining us on this great conversation with John Allarding Dio, graduate of OUCOM 85? 85. 85 who, if anybody who has the power to do this is listening, should get an award from OUHCOM because he's an awesome DO and a great alumni. So we'll catch you on the next episode of Rotations. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media in medicine's family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage, of Col Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nishard Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotation is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from podcasts. 
We welcome any comments and you can contact us by emailing us rotationspodcast at gmail.com tweeting us at rotationspcast or visiting mediamedicine.com slash rotations. I do want to see the March of the Penguins, though. <laughs> I saw that movie, and I thought, I'd love to be down there when those little dudes are walking across the ice. That'd be kind of cool to watch. It would be cool to watch. Oh, yeah, that's right. We didn't met, Steve didn't mention the uh, the seals. Yeah, what, what else seals? The variety of seal life they see. Oh, yeah. And they will literally come up to the station at different, you know, if this is at Palmer. They'll be, the guys will come out, and they'll be... You got to step around them when you're coming out of the. They're not intimidated by people. You're not predating them, so they don't worry about. Are they violent? Are they are they aggressive? The ones that come up close are are not violent. Uh, The ones you approach that aren't coming towards you uh, are like any other wild animal. Yeah. But some of them are just so docile and and cool and unintimidated by anything that. They'll wander right up and fall asleep on your pier at the bottom of the staircase. Are they, are any, have any of them become pets? That no, you're just no, known? You don't touch them. You don't yeah, do I mean, they have any, teeth, any right? type so. of intervention. Very strong That's the rulings thing. against Same changing. Same thing with the penguins. Sometimes there'll be shots. I don't know if Steve took these, but certainly he's got some fabulous shots. Not just he took, but other people have taken. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this penguin, and it'll be like, Wait a minute, we're his friends. They can look ratty, dirty. They just don't look right. And you go, you can't. Cleaned up their cute little things, but most of the time they're covered in their own guano and stinking. So it's not the publicity shots we see. (laughs) The reality of penguins is a lot like Hollywood, right? They are stinky, dirty little animals. (laughs) So that's like all those pictures you see of Hollywood movie stars at the grocery store. They don't look nearly like they do on screen. You gotta let them die. They cannot interfere. No. Well, they have walruses down there too, right? No. I thought there were walruses in the Antarctic. No, they have elephant seals. Elephant seals. Yeah, those are the biggest ones. They can be huge. And you usually and smell and hear smell. them long before you see them. They they are stinky, loud, crude critters, but entertaining to watch.